May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be always acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strong rock and redeemer. Please be seated. Good morning. Now, if this story that we just heard sounds a bit familiar, and maybe because we heard a very similar version last week. We heard of Jesus calling his first disciples from John's gospel, and you'll remember Jean's very colorful description of them creeping up behind Jesus and Jesus turning around and saying, why are you following me? Well, this week, the story is a little bit different, and we get Matthew's remix of the gospel story. And Jesus said to them, follow me and I will make you fish for people. Immediately, they left their nets and followed him. For many of us, these words are probably very familiar. In Matthew's gospel reading, we find Jesus ever the master of rhetoric, a master of language, calling his first disciples from their life and career of fishing to become his followers, using that powerful metaphor of becoming fishers for people. And I think this phrase for me has become almost overly familiar. Because when I stopped to think about it, I thought, okay, what does this mean to be a fisher of people. The images I conjure up are notions of luring someone in, like the catfishes who use fake dating profiles to troll or scam people in online dating. The metaphor seems a little suspicious in this regard. I think of a greasy salesperson thinking, I've got them on the line, or someone took the bait, or I've got them on the hook. So when it comes to religion and Christianity, I reckon we all may be a bit uncomfortable with extending this metaphor too far. For surely, we live in Wellington. Aren't we supposed to be citizens of a liberal, democratic state that acknowledges the complexity of everyone's own personal religious beliefs and spirituality? Surely you can't mean that Jesus can't mean I'm supposed to bait people in somehow and convert them to followers of my own religion. Because we're all enlightened here, right? We're at that stage five of Fowler's stages of faith where we've made our faith our own, uh, but we can also recognize that others don't have to replicate or copy or practice the religion and spirituality exactly like I do. So why would I try to be fishing for people? Why would I try and be trying to get them hooked, trying to bait them? Maybe that worked for those first followers of Jesus, but I'm not trying to bait anyone in our plural, liberal, democratic society, right? There are a couple reasons I think this fishing for people thing seems so uncomfortable. First is the privatization of religion. Like one's political beliefs, religious beliefs have been relegated to one's private, personal life. In our society, only the extremely zealous actively try to convert others to their religion. They're the crazies out on the street or handing out books or Bibles. One of the greatest tenets of secularism, though, is that beliefs don't really matter. Secular society says that values can become by rationally, perhaps emotionally, but certainly spirituality has nothing to do with being a good citizen of a secular state and community. Deeply connected to this idea of privatization of religion is the second reason I think some of us may hesitate 
to lean into fishing for people. And that second reason is that the church has a reputational problem. Let's face it, the history of the church is not always our best friend. The church as an institution has been connected to some really awful, terrible things. We've seen sexual abuse cover-ups, mistreatment and subjugation of Mori or other minority members. Many churches are openly and loudly anti-LGBTQ liberation and rights. A few months back, I was catching up with a colleague up the hill at uh, the university. And when I told her I went to church, she was a bit taken back and quite literally lost for words. All she could say was, oh, is it, um, is it good? <laughs> Too often the church has failed the public. Too often the church has failed to be good. Too often the church has not been that perfect reflection of God's light, and so I totally get it. If I were to say, cast your rods out and lure in those people into church, I can get why you might be uncomfortable, because I'm a little uncomfortable. But lucky for us, there's another metaphor in our text today. The reading from the Hebrew Bible, Isaiah 9, is quoted in Matthew's account. Jesus stands up and says, the people who sat in darkness have seen a great light. And for those who sat in the region and shadow of death, light has dawned. I think this passage invites us to see a different understanding of church and evangelism. Matthew is giving us another metaphor. Jesus, Matthew paints him as the full fulfillment, the fullness of the hopes of a particular nation and culture. Jesus is the Messiah, though, not just for Israel, but for the whole world. He's the great light, a light greater than even his followers could have imagined. For all those who sit in darkness, all, all those who sit under the shadow of death, Jesus has come. He is the light of the world, bringing warmth, brightness, and everything that comes with light. Matthew, I think, is saying that to be fishers of people, we need to reflect that light. There's no deception or bait. There's simply the proclamation that the light is here. The kingdom of heaven has come near. Jesus' proclamation is not private, but public. He is light, and light cannot be hidden. When we reflect that light of God, that light cannot be privatized away to katakia before meals or meetings. That light cannot be privatized away just to a Sunday morning experience. That light cannot be hidden away. It cannot help but shine. But that doesn't deal with the problem that there's still a lot of darkness in the world. It doesn't deal with the reputational problem of the church. If the kingdom of heaven is near, then why are people still so bloody awful? If the church is the vessel of the light, why can church people and church institutions still be so bloody awful? Well, in the backs of the prayer books of the Book of Common Prayer from the U.S., where I'm from, and um, in the old 1662 books, if you can dig one of those up, you can find in the very back the 39 articles. And Article 26 addresses this question. It says something like this. In the visible church, evil is ever mingled with the good. In the visible church, evil is ever mingled with the good. 
And this is an Augustinian notion that we get carried through centuries and centuries of church theology. And it's this idea that the good is always mixed with the bad in individuals, in institutions, in governments, and especially in churches. Nothing, as much as we may want it to be, is wholly light or wholly dark. And part of that Christian task, the ecclesial task of the church, is to identify the good, identify the light, and identify the darkness. Jesus' message to us from this morning's gospel starts with repent. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. We start with repentance because there's a recognition of the fact that we're not perfect. We're finite, limited, in a word, human. Thus, in the church, we must admit that we're not perfect. We must admit that there's a mixture of darkness and light within all of us, within each individual and within us as a body. So when we fish for people, we're not casting our nets into darkness and dragging people into light, no. It was that kind of logic that fueled the violence of the Crusades, of settler colonialism, and even slavery. We must have generosity, humility, and grace when approaching humans and human institutions like church and governments. One of our human limitations is this craving for things to be black and white, hero and villain, lightness and darkness. But only God is perfect light. It's this kind of nuanced thinking, this discernment that we need when approaching any structure made up of humans. It's with that kind of thinking that we can celebrate the absolute good that our Prime Minister did for our country. And at the same time, we can recognize her limitations and know that any shortcomings of her government are shortcomings made by humans. The good is ever mingled with the bad. Part of the reason we gather here on Sunday is to practice living into that nuance, practice living into that discernment, and to practice reflecting that light. We gather here together week after week, whether or not we like each other, whether or not we like the priests, whether or not we like the bishop or the preachers, but we come because God's light is here. We come because we feel that light of God, that light that says God loves you. God is light for you. God is warmth for you. You are loved. The light is shining on you. The light is on you, and I see that light. After the prayers, we get to look each other in the face and proclaim that there is peace between us. We get to look the minister in the eyes and hear that the God of light, the God of universe, is here for you in the bread and in the wine. This is exciting. The light is here. Have you seen the light? Have you felt that light? No matter where you're at, if you're fatigued, if you're bogged down, if you're exhausted, if you're jaded, if you're cynical, I pray that you find some light here today. You are seen and you are loved. There's goodness and love and beauty to be found here in the light of Christ. No matter the darkness, there's always light. And so today I pray we look for the light and by its radiance may we recognize the darkness in ourselves, in our community, and in our country. And may we always embrace the light. 
For when we embrace this light and let it permeate into our being, our actions and our thoughts, then, and I truly believe this, fishing for people won't be throwing out a lure or a bait. For all will be drawn to light because it is light. In the name of the triune God, creator, redeemer, and sustainer of life. Amen.